Hey guys, this is Erin from Roadrun Blonde, and I wanted to tell you about a new feature on ACAST that supports its artists. It's the supporter feature. Listeners to Roadrun Blonde can now donate and support the podcast. However, there's no subscription or commitment. You can just give whenever or whatever you'd like. It's completely up to you. Just find the support the show link in the show description on any episode. You can use Apple Pay or Google Pay, and it takes less than 30 seconds. You can donate anonymously, or you can add a message that I can see. As a podcaster, everything comes directly out of my pocket. I don't get paid to podcast. It's just my passion. So anything is appreciated to keep the show going. Thank you so much, guys. And now on to the show. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hello and welcome to Red Rum Blonde. This is a true crime podcast. Each week, I'll explore a case, the victims, the facts, and the mystery surrounding it. Some are solved, some remain unsolved. I'm your host, Erin Fleming. I think most of us would do anything for our family. And I'm sure that's what Melissa Jones felt in September of 2004 when she invited her aunt and uncle to stay at her home during Hurricane Ivan. This gesture would result in murder, as well as the death of her aunt and uncle. So how could one generous act result in such tragedy? Investigators would quickly fall down a rabbit hole and discover there was a lot more to her uncle's past than they expected. Was he a serial killer? we'll find out as I explore the case of Charlie Brandt. Let's start out in September of 2004. It was hurricane season off the coast of Florida, and Hurricane Ivan was very powerful. It had already killed over 68 people in the Caribbean. An evacuation was ordered for the Florida Keys before the hurricane made landfall. 37-year-old Melissa Jones was very worried about her aunt and uncle, Terry and Charlie Brandt lived in Big Pine Key, Florida, and that's about 400 miles away, right where the storm was about to hit. Terry was the sister to Melissa's mom, Mary Lou. Even though she lived in North Carolina, Mary Lou talked to her daughter almost every day on the phone. Being close to her mom and her aunt, Melissa felt the safest place for the couple would be her home which was in Maitland, near Orlando, Florida. 
She offered her home as a refuge for the couple. And Melissa was doing very well at her job. She was a, an executive at the Golf Channel, and it afforded her the luxury of a four-bedroom home, complete with a pool. With so much room, it would be the perfect place for them to just wait out the storm. After boarding up their home, Charles and Terry packed up their 2002 Subaru Outback, and they headed for Melissa's home. Initially, Charles just wanted to wait out the storm at home, but the trio decided they would make it a fun time. They could get together and enjoy talking and, you know, making sure that they were all safe. Plus, they planned to only stay overnight. It wasn't going to be a long stay. They arrived on Saturday, September 11th. The next day, Charlie called his dad, Herbert, who lived in nearby Orlando, they came by for a visit. While they were there, they made bread and drank beer before they headed to see Charlie's younger sister, Jessica, for dinner. And at Jessica's, the siblings were able to call their other sisters by phone. Angela was the eldest, and she lived only an hour away. She remembers asking Charlie to come by for a visit the next day, but he declined and he said he had plans. In retrospect, she wasn't sure if it was because they had planned just a short stay, or if something else was on his mind. When Mary Lou called her daughter on Monday, it went straight to her voicemail. But since she had house guests, she wasn't worried that she didn't get a hold of her. But then on Tuesday, it passed by, and she didn't have a word from Michelle, and that wasn't like her. And by Wednesday, Mary Lou became very concerned. She made a call to one of her daughter's friends that she had since they were teenagers. That was Debbie Knight. And Debbie drove over to her friend's house to check up on her, and she stayed on the phone the whole time with Michelle's mom. At first, Debbie tried the spare key that her friend had given her for the front door, but it wouldn't open. So she went around to the garage. And the sides of the garage were almost all glass, making it really easy to see inside. And that's when she saw Charlie Brandt hanging from the rafters, dead from an apparent suicide. Lead investigator Rob Hammer remembers the scene very vividly. Charlie was hanging from a bedsheet with a ladder nearby. And once he entered the home, he could smell death. He said it clashed with the scenery of the home. It was decorated with a very nice feminine touch. He suspected that what he was going to find wouldn't be very good. On a couch in the living room, he found Terry slumped over, and she'd been stabbed seven times in the chest. And when he got to Michelle's bedroom, he was in for a gruesome sight. Michelle had been decapitated, and her head placed next to her body in a very sick display. Her heart had been removed. Also removed were her breasts and some organs. Victoria's secret underwear was cut and strewn across the room. After observing the whole scene, Hemmert concluded that Charlie was the killer. The house had been locked. There was no sign of a struggle or forced entry. So what caused this man to kill his wife of nearly 18 years and his niece? The responsibility of finding out was a very weighty task. So Hemmert surveyed more of the house. The family had all had dinner. You could still smell the fish that had been cooked in the air. There were wine glasses on the counter, evidence that they'd had some drinks. 
Michelle's lifelong friend, Lisa Emmons, was able to shed some light on the previous night's events. Michelle called her on the phone to cancel some plans, and she told of how her aunt and uncle were arguing, having had too much to drink. Michelle was really tired and simply just wanted to go to bed. The Brants had planned to leave the next day. Their bags were sitting right there in the hallway. But for whatever reason, Charlie had wanted to stay an extra night. There was no sensible reason for it. The storm had already passed and they were safe to go home. The women were killed while they slept. And Charlie had used Michonne's own kitchen knives to do the job. And while he used just one stab to Michelle's chest, he inflicted very many to his wife's. And he placed the blood-soaked clothing of his niece in the sink before he disemboweled her. The removal of her heart was so precise. It was like the work of someone who had done this before. Michelle's mother, Mary Lou, was in shock, of course. She had lost her sister and her daughter. And her brother-in-law had been in their lives for almost 17 years without any issues. So how was this possible? Sure, Charlie was an oddball. He was quiet and eccentric, but never violent. Her sister, who described, him, described her as happy-go-lucky, never had any problems with her husband. And Terry's best friend described the couple as inseparable. They never argued and every day they made each other's lunches. This wasn't the type of couple you expect to be involved in a murder or suicide. So at this point, police were just baffled. There seemed to be no motive. But after a few days, someone would come forward with some information about the past, and that would shed some light on the whole situation. There was a secret that Charlie's older sister, Angela, had kept for almost three decades. This wasn't her brother's first kill. Charles Brandt was born on February 23, 1957. He was the second child and only son of German immigrants, Herbert and Ilsa. His father was a laborer for the Division of International Harvester by day, and at night he went to college. Eventually, he worked his way up to the position of draftsman and then project engineer. But because of his job, the family had to move around a lot. And the kids went to many different schools. And that proved to be hard on shy Charlie. Finally, in September of 1968, Herbert was transferred to the Plains Fort Wayne, Indiana location as a permanent move. The family was a bit disappointed, though. They longed to be back in Connecticut, which was the birthplace of Charlie, and home to all their relatives. But despite their disappointment, they decided to make the best of it in Indiana. Summers and Christmas were spent in sunny Florida. And there, Charlie would hunt with his father in the morning and spend the remainder of the day on the beach with the rest of the family. When he was 12, Charlie got a dog for Christmas that year. And like most puppies, the dog was very unruly. It made messes on the floor and it wouldn't come when called but I think any reasonable person would understand that's how puppies behave. The next Christmas, the dog went with Herbert and his son on their hunting trip, which was a big mistake. The dog ran behind some bushes. Perhaps it was spooked by the guns or just checking out the scenery. Regardless, it wouldn't come out. 
Herbert got angry and he shot at the bushes. He claimed he was only trying to scare the animal out, but his shot killed the dog, which devastated his son. However, the father and son never discussed this incident. They returned home to Indiana in silence. The night of January 3rd, 1971, was a typical night in the Brandt household. Their youngest sisters, which were ages two and four, were asleep in the shared bedroom. And 13-year-old Charlie and 15-year-old Angela were each in their own rooms, reading and doing homework. Herbert was in the bathroom shaving, and his pregnant wife was taking a bath. Angela remembered hearing her father yell, Charlie, stop, before she heard a gunshot. So unbeknownst to any of the family, Charlie had gone into his parents' bedroom, and he'd taken his father's handgun from the nightstand. He shot his 39-year-old father while he was shaving, turning the gun next on his 40-year-old mother. Herbert fell to the ground. Angela heard her mother yell, Angela, call the police, before she heard two more shots. Charlie shot his mother once in the chest and once again in the abdomen, the shot hitting the unborn baby boy in her stomach, killing it instantly. Ilsa and the baby died in the bath. She was eight months pregnant. Angela ran from the bedroom where she encountered her brother in the hallway, and he tried to fire on her too, but the gun either jammed or was out of bullets. So he attacked her physically. The older sister managed to get a hold of the situation by looking into her brother's eyes, pleading with him to stop. After telling him she loved him, she said she saw the madness dissipate from his eyes. So ambling for something to calm him down, she told him they could take their baby sisters and go live on a hippie commune. You have to remember, this was the early 70s. And when she saw this appeased him, she took that moment to run from his grasp. She tore out of the house through the snow, wearing only her bloody nightgown. Angela ran to the next-door neighbor's house, pounding on the door for help. 16-year-old neighbor Sandy Radcliffe was surprised to hear someone knocking that late at night, and she hesitated to answer. By the time she got to the door, she was met not by Angela, who had fled to another neighbor's, but Charlie. He said, Sandy, I just shot my mom and dad. Lead investigator Dan Feigl got the late night call about the incident, and he hurried to the hospital hoping that Herbert could hang on and tell him what happened. Luckily, he survived, but he couldn't say why this, his son did this. And when he questioned Charlie, the teen was in shock, seeming not to know why he did it either. The Indiana courts ordered three separate psychiatric evaluations of the boy. And one of the psychiatrists, Richard Panzer, was stumped. Charlie didn't show any signs of mental illness. He did well in school. He loved his family, was even considered a mama's boy. The psychiatrist had to agree with the other two that there was nothing to diagnose with the teen. There was just no psychosis. And when asked when the, when the boy turned violent, he had to answer, we don't know why he turned violent. So since he was too young to be held criminally responsible, he was never charged for the crime nor brought to trial. And even though a grand jury investigated, 
and said a crime like that would surely repeat itself. Not much was able to be done. Charlie was sent to a psychiatric hospital where he spent a year. But Herbert petitioned for his release and he won. So after reuniting with his father, the two never spoke of what happened, just like the incident with Charlie's dog. So maybe that was their culture, who knows. But it couldn't have been healthy to not speak about it. Trying to make a fresh start, the family moved to Florida, the place where they previously enjoyed happier times. A year later, Herbert remarried, and the family returned to Fort Wayne, Indiana. Well, not all the family. Angela decided to move out on her own, and Charlie stayed back in Florida with his grandparents, who had moved from Germany. He seemed a bit better after everything that happened. He became more sociable to the delight of his grandparents. In keeping with that weird tradition, the family never talked about what happened. In fact, the baby sisters were never told of the violent incident. They believed their mother had died naturally. They grew up not knowing anything. So the only living witnesses were Angela and her father. In 1974, Charlie earned a two-year degree in electronics from a community college, and he became a radar specialist. He was doing really well, and he seemed to put the past behind him. By April of 1985, he was working at the Ford Aerospace and Communication Service Electronic Warfare Range, which was in Astor near Daytona Beach. And it was around that same time that he was set up on a blind date by Jim Graves, who at the time was married to his sister, Angela. Charlie instantly fell for Teresa Helfrich, who was a manager at a retail store in Daytona Beach. Terry, as she was known, also fell for Charlie. The two decided to quickly marry, but not before Jim insisted that Charlie tell her what happened in the past. He still remembered the day his wife Angela broke the news of her brother's past to him. He said he came home from work to find his wife in tears. And when she kept the secret, or she confessed his secret, he was dumbfounded. And Charlie was one of the nicest guys he'd ever met. He wouldn't even kill a bug in the house. And assuming it was some issue that he'd overcome, he still urged him to come clean with Terry. Jim just always assumed that he did. He said one time he visited the married couple. And when he asked if kids were in the future, Terry said she thought it best not, considering what happened. So he just assumed that she meant the shooting of his parents. No family was in attendance of the wedding on August 29th of 1986. After they married, the couple built a thousand square foot home in Big Pine Key, Florida, becoming what locals called Piners. Charlie was making very good money as a radar technician, and things were going well. So how did things go from that to a murder-suicide so many years later? Detective Hemmert went to the Brandt home in Big Pine Key to try to discern more about Charlie and his possible motives. The house was still boarded up from Hurricane Ivan. But it wasn't boarded up like most houses when people evacuate. The wood panels that they used were looked like they were custom fit for the windows. The holes for the doorknobs were meticulously cut, which was odd for a radar technician. 
The inside of the house was just as neat and tidy. Not a thing out of place, nothing unusual. He said that was until we got to the bedroom. And hanging on the bedroom door was an anatomical poster of a woman. And in graphic detail, it showed the skeletal and muscular system. And the really weird part was the woman's hair was up in a bun, much like Michelle wore hers. Hemmert couldn't figure out why the couple would have such a poster in their home. I mean, neither were in the medical field. And why wouldn't Terry object to such a weird poster hanging on their bedroom door? I mean, I know couples don't always agree on decor, but I think if I had something really strange hanging up and someone in my family objected, I would just take it down. I mean, surely Terry had to think that was strange. But if she did, no one had any idea. They found diaries that she kept, but nothing out of the ordinary popped up in them. The most that she would write would be strange day and then not elaborate on why. She did have several entries in which she noted that Charlie had been out late at night or all night without an explanation. I mean, surely she had to wonder where he'd been. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. The search in the home got even weirder. Charlie owned medical and anatomy books, and once again, if you're not in the medical field, why would you have these? And there were stacks and stacks of Victoria's Secret catalogs. They weren't addressed to Terry. They were addressed to Charlie. The creepiest part about this is that was his nickname for Michelle, Victoria's Secret. He even told his co-workers about calling her that. And unbeknownst to her, he had an infatuation with Michelle. I'm sure she kind of got the hint, but couldn't have taken it seriously and probably just shrugged it off, not knowing of the seriousness of the obsession. She probably just kind of avoided him like that weird uncle at Thanksgiving dinner that says inappropriate things to you. There was no way she could know of his dark fantasies. And that was what was discovered next, the extent of his dark desires. 
When his computer was examined, they found that he visited sites about violence against women, necrophilia, death fantasies. When the depravity of what he was into came to light, Hemmert was convinced that they were dealing with an individual more experienced than they realized. He said, you saw where he may have gotten some of his ideas and thoughts from. The thing that we noted immediately was the things that he did with her body did not appear to be someone who had done this for the first time. There had to be more. So could they have a serial killer on their hands? In an effort to find out, he started looking into cold cases in the area that might fit Charlie's M.O. And he brought in Leslie D'Ambrosia, who was a criminal profiler, to analyze dozens of cold cases. She concluded that Charles Brandt was organized, intelligent, and planned out what he did. He was all about precision to a very methodical degree. Together, they formed a task force to look into these cold cases, and they found more than a few that fit his M.O. The first case was from September 20, 1978. 12-year-old Carol Sullivan disappeared from her bus stop in Volusia County. Her body was never found, but a skull was recovered, which was found in a bucket, which many think were her, was hers. And at that time, Charlie would have been 20, and he lived in Volusia County, but he was never tied to the crime. The next case occurred on December 16th of 1988. Nursing student Lisa Sanders was from Big Pine Key, and on that night, she attended a party on nearby no-name key. She was last seen walking on foot, most likely on her way home. Her body was found on an unpaved road by a gravel pit. She'd been beaten, stabbed, and dragged behind a car with a rope around her neck, and missing were her heart, ovaries, eyes, bladder, and parts of her brain. The next murder would have happened only four blocks from the Brant home in 1989 when some fishermen under a bridge thought that they reeled in a mannequin. They were horrified to realize that it was actually the body of a woman. The lead investigator on the case was Monroe County Homicide Detective Trish Daly, and she found that the victim was 38-year-old Sherry Parisho, who was a local homeless woman. Sherry lived on a small rowboat, and at the end of the day, she would put her bike on the boat, and she would take the boat about 100 yards offshore where she would sleep. Detective Daly figured that she was probably placed on the boat with her feet hanging off the stern. She'd had her hard cut, heart cut out very precisely. And like some of the other victims of Charles Brandt, decapitation was attempted, but this time it wasn't successful. However, her throat was slashed with such force that the blade cut through her spine. And on the bottom of her boat were knife marks. It was as if her board was used as a cutting board. The major aspect that trying to tie Charlie to this crime was his strong resemblance to the sketch of a man who had been seen running across the highway near the scene. The Brants had moved to the area just three months previous to this murder. And not only that, but at the time, his own wife suspected him of this crime. So his ex-brother-in-law, Jim, told of an encounter with Terry that had shocked him. 
She told Jim about how she came downstairs late one night, and she found Charlie just covered in blood. His excuse was that he'd been cleaning a fish, but it was the middle of the night, and he hadn't been fishing that day. So considering his past, she suspected that he'd done something awful. And when she heard about the woman who was killed, she was even more suspicious. But when she point-blank asked him about it, he denied it. So whether or not that was enough for her is an absolute mystery. She never reported anything. Regardless of what she did or didn't do, Brant was officially named the killer in 2006. The next murder's details were a bit harder to pin down. The only thing that I found was in Big Pine Key, there had been a rape and murder of a four-year-old girl and was either in 1988 or 1989. Then on November 24, 1995, Darlene Toller was found dead. She was a sex worker in Miami's Little Havana area. Detective Pat Diaz was the lead investigator. Darlene had been found with her heart removed and she'd been decapitated. Her body was found by the highway wrapped in a blanket, which was then wrapped in plastic and tied. And Diaz said it was tied so neatly it looked almost like a package. Dog hairs found on the blanket were similar to dog hairs found in the back of Brant's truck. And Charlie used that highway on a regular basis. In fact, he kept track of his mileage every time he got gas. And there was an entry for 100 miles the day of that murder. And that's the exact distance from Miami to Big Pine Key. The task force kept finding more and more cases that seemed to fit this profile. And the terrifying thought was how well-traveled Charlie was. He'd been all over the place, even all over the world. So there might be countless crimes that could be attributed to him. And there was simply no way of knowing for sure. Jim recalls another odd story, which in retrospect reveals a lot. At this time, he'd been divorced from Angela, but he and Charlie remained friends. And one night they were out at a bar drinking. And Jim had just been through a very rough breakup with a girl. And they got on the subject of revenge. And Charlie said to him, Well, you know the best way to get revenge would be to cut someone's heart out. Jim admits he was a bit shocked and he just kind of changed the subject. Now, of course, it reveals a lot about how Brant thought. The question that sticks in investigators' minds was, how much did Terry know? Detective Daly had a theory. She said, you're talking about somebody that you're in a relationship with. You don't want to believe that somebody you've committed your life with would commit a crime, especially that heinous. Obviously, Charlie Brandt kept a lot to himself. Because many who knew him were absolutely shocked that he could have committed these crimes. They just knew him as a nice guy. And some even blame Herbert and Angela Brandt, saying they could have prevented his crimes. Michelle's parents, Mary Lou and Bill, do. They think they should have gotten him help. Bill said, This man may have been able to have been stopped. He may never have been cured, but he could have been stopped. As much as I feel for their pain, I don't think the Brands could have done anything. You have to remember, he wasn't diagnosed as being mentally ill. 
He had three different psychiatrists examine him, and they couldn't find any mental illness. Plus, Charles Brandt was eventually an adult, and unless you have legal control over someone, you can't control whether or not they get any kind of help. I know, I've been down this road before with a family member. Someone can't be admitted against their will unless they're very ill or they're threatening to kill themselves. So as a concerned family member, you have no rights and your hands are tied. Angela confessed to Mary Lou that she was glad her brother had killed himself. She'd been terrified of him. She always thought that he would come after her and finish the job. And because of what happened that night, she was never able to sleep with an air conditioner on. And she had to have all the windows open and unlocked in case she needed a fast escape like on that night. I think if she could have done anything about her brother, she probably would have. She was in fear. But this is all conjecture. As far as their father, I think he felt better just pushing things under the rug. You know, out of sight, out of mind. The Brands have refused to allow the state to release Charlie's medical records from when he was in the psychiatric hospital. But in July of 2006, an Indiana judge allowed these records to be released to Rob Hemmert, but not to the public. It was done in the hopes that it'll help with the investigation of more cold cases that might be connected. Michelle's parents are trying to get together a public database like the ones used for sex offenders that would list anyone who had committed a murder, regardless of their age at the time. They feel that this might prevent what happened to their daughter happening to someone else. And Hemmer is still working on the cold cases, admitting it's an enormous amount of time and legwork. He said a lot of their resources are limited, but they're not giving up. In the end, who knows how many murders they will eventually tie to Charles Brandt. The scariest part is no one can even determine what drove him to do what he did. I mean, was he misdiagnosed or was there some abuse in his childhood that was never brought to light? And that, that could very well be. Who knows? People don't just kill for no reason. Either they've suffered some form of abuse themselves or they've had some sort of mental illness. Maybe he was just a sociopath. Since he killed himself, we'll just never know. And obviously, from their past actions, the Brandt family isn't going to talk about it. It's also crazy to wonder what all went through his wife's mind. I wonder how much she suspected or actually knew. And I agree that she was in some kind of denial. She probably didn't want to accept what she worried might have been going on. It's very odd. So that was the case of Charlie Brandt. I think the moral to this story, to get from this whole thing, is that it's not good to keep family secrets. I just always thought this was a really crazy story. You really have to feel for Michelle's family. I mean, this was just a woman that was worried about her aunt and uncle's safety, and it got her brutally killed. It's just really awful. Thank you so much for listening. I wasn't sure I was going to get this one out this week. I was laid up for a day and a half with some kind of weird flu thing. But I'm very thankfully much better and was able to get the rest of the podcast written and recorded. Also really excited to say that I've hit somehow 10,000 listens since I switched from SoundCloud to Acast. And that was scary at first because I had a lot of listens on SoundCloud and I wasn't sure I was going to get listeners after the move. 
but thank you so much to everybody who's checked the podcast out there. I still can't figure out iTunes analytics, so I have no idea how I'm doing there. But sincerely, thank you so much for listening. I'm really amazed. And thank you so much for listening this week, and catch you next time. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. The secret to summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil, clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Its signature scent of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com.